0: Glad you guys are here with us today. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you've um, chosen to join us here on this kind of dismal day to brave the elements, but as William Wallace said, it's good Scottish weather. The rain is falling straight down, well, slightly to the side-like. So anyway, during the Advent season, during the Advent season, we celebrate the birth of a hero, the Advent simply means arrival. And so when we celebrate the advent of, of Jesus, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation when when Jesus, this God who became man, he took on the likeness of sinful flesh, yet remained without sin. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate this every year. And it's really the arrival of a hero. And if you look through the scriptures, you realize that the arrival of this hero is planned, foretold, and waited for patiently throughout the scriptures. And that's one of the beautiful things about the scriptures, is that they are, in essence, centered on Jesus. And that you can see whispers of Christ from cover to cover. Sometimes it's subtle, and sometimes it shouts with a megaphone. But Jesus is really throughout. The reason we need a hero is because of what we've been looking at. It kind of builds from the creation to where we are currently, where we've been in the last few weeks in the book of Leviticus, which is the third book of the Bible, if you started at the beginning. And in a nutshell, what we see up until this point in the Bible narrative, the meta narrative of Scripture, is that we see a good God created a perfect creation. And he created Adam and Eve as his image, as an extension of his authority and reign. And essentially, he says to Adam and Eve, the first humans, that you have dominion. And that doesn't mean do whatever the heck you want. What it means is that they are reigning on earth as an extension of his authority, as his image, kind of like as kings on this creation that he has made for his glory and for their goodness, And as an extension of his reign, they are functioning under his authority, listening to him, and then enacting what he says. But we see just by Genesis chapter 3, the third book of the scriptures, the third book of the Bible, that Adam and Eve decide they no longer want to submit to God as the king of everything. And instead, they want to take authority in their own hands. They want to determine for themselves what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is untrue. And they rebel, they rebel in this act of insubordination and insurrection, they essentially try to throw off the yoke that the God who created them had for them that was good, and they replace it with a yoke of slavery. And in that moment, we see that everything changes. All of a sudden, for the very first time, Adam and Eve are ashamed of themselves. There's all of a sudden this conflict between husband and wife. There's a conflict with creation. And you see that their rebellion, since they were in essence over creation, their rebellion doesn't just impact them, but as we've been learning, sin defiles everything. And so it defiles every aspect of creation and just infects like a plague. But God makes a promise. And we see this in the early chapters of Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise. And he says, I'm going to isolate um, a solution. And the solution is going to come in a family. The solution is going to come from a descendant from this man named Abram, who's going to bless the whole world. But in between that and the reality that we see of Jesus, a lot happened. And one of those things that happened is that Abram, as he had a son, and his son had sons and sons and kids and grandkids and all that stuff, this this really budding nation, which is not yet a nation but is growing as a people, winds up in slavery in the land of Egypt. Some of you have read the book of Exodus. Others of you have watched the Charlton Heston movie. And some of you have no idea, but you can learn all about it reading the second book of the Bible. And what happens in the book of Exodus is essentially that God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of the oppression of a Pharaoh who would use them as slaves and bend them to his will. God rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm using this man named Moses. He sends Moses to proclaim The words that God speaks to him, and he sends Moses to do the works of God through miracles as God essentially declares war on the false gods of Egypt. God rescues them out of slavery. He rescues them out of Egypt. He brings them to the shores of the Red Sea, and he parts the Red Sea miraculously, and he leads this new budding nation across, and as the Egyptian soldiers chase them, the waters come back down And God brings his people in a new creation while undoing creation upon the Egyptians' heads. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai, where God essentially says to them, I am starting over with you. I will be your king, and you will be my people. And then he gives them a law, a constitution of sorts, where he says, this is how my people live. This is what my people do. This is my responsibility. This is your responsibility. And in the book of Exodus, part of that is building this tent, which is called the tabernacle. And the tent is essentially God's mobile palace. So he says, let's go here. And he does it in a pillar of fire. And they follow him. And then they set up God's mobile palace. And they... Uh, And God dwells in there in the midst of his people. But as they finish the tabernacle, something happens. God's glory fills this palace, this throne room. And it's so thick that the people of Israel have to run away. And so right before Leviticus, where we've been for the last, I don't know, six weeks or something like that. Right before Leviticus, where we end the book of Exodus with this implied question of how do a sinful people live in the midst of a holy God? And that's what the sacrificial system in Leviticus has always been about. Over the last five, six weeks, when our recordings work, we've learned um, much about God's holiness and man's sinfulness. I think those are two of the main things that we've been learning. But when you have a holy God and when you have a sinful people, that creates a requirement. And the requirement that it creates is for mediation, Mediation is essentially reconciling two parties. If a marriage, a couple is on the rocks and the husband and wife come to me for, for marriage counseling, what they're really asking is, will you mediate our relationship? Because often at that point in time, um, they're so beyond and they're fighting that I need to listen to the wife and then say to the husband, this is what your wife just said. Do you hear her? And then the husband talks to me and I say, this is what your husband just said. Did you because there's so much brokenness in the relationship. That's what a mediator does, right? Well, in the Old Testament, this is what I want you guys to realize. In the Old Testament, there's three types of mediators. Three types of mediators. They're the prophet, the priest, and the king. All of those offices or roles are mediatory in essence. And this is the simplest way to understand it, okay? Priests face God with their backs to the people. Prophets face the people with their back to God. And kings rule on behalf of God for the glory of God and the good of the people. And these are the three mediatory roles that we see throughout the scriptures. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because I'm here to tell you unashamedly that Jesus Christ is the only way to to the Father. He's the only way to paradise. There's only one road. There aren't multiple roads. This isn't a mountain that you can summit from different angles, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And in essence, the reason this is true is because no man, no religious teacher, no guru, no philosopher ever has or ever could fulfill all three of those mediatory roles in other words a sinful priest cannot resent, represent a sinful people before a holy god a sinful prophet cannot accurately hear from a holy god so that he can then proclaim what god says to a sinful people And a sinful king will always be self-centered and focused and will neither obediently execute God's will, nor will he selflessly serve his people. And since for salvation to happen, according to the Old Testament, we need those three roles of mediation, a sinful man or woman would never fit the bill. But I want you to know that Jesus was born to function in these three roles specifically, which is why we can say, along with Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as our priest, Jesus represents us before God. As our prophet, he reveals to us who God actually is. And as our king, he's crowned with glory, executing the will of his father for the good of his people. We sang about that in all those Christmas carols if you look closely. So today what I want to do is touch on this idea of priest and prophet. We've already spent a lot of time on priest. And on Christmas Eve, we want to talk about Jesus as our king. So Jesus is our priest. You know, in the Old Testament, we've been talking about this. The priest was the mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And the people knew their sinfulness was defiling. And so they would bring sacrifices to the priest who would then take the animal's blood and would sprinkle it on various parts of that tabernacle so that a holy God could still live in this place. And so the tabernacle, it's kind of like the tabernacle's constantly being defiled by a sinful people, and the blood, as they sprinkle the blood, it pushes the defilement back, but then it keeps getting defiled, and they keep sprinkling the blood. And so it's like you're constantly trying to power wash it away, except it's with blood, which is gross, okay? And so this is the picture of what a priest does. And so the priest officiates these sacrifices with the people. The people cannot present the blood to God. Only the priest can as their mediator. But beyond those regular sacrifices, we also see that there is a high priest. That's kind of like a chief priest, or it says in Leviticus, the anointed priest. It's all the same idea, that he was anointed By the Spirit of God in order to be a priest. By the way, in case I forget to say it, the prophet was anointed by the Spirit of God to proclaim. And the king was anointed by the Spirit of God to rule. Jesus was anointed when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove so he could fulfill all three roles. It's not in my notes. I don't want to forget it. Okay. So beyond these regular sacrifices, the high priest was the chief mediator. So the other priests were just mediators, but he's the chief mediator between God and the nation. And in this role, the chief priest, the mediator, he enters into the innermost room of the tabernacle, of that tent, that little portable palace. And in the innermost room is called the Holy of Holies. And I want you to think of that like a throne room. That the holiest of holies is God's throne room as they're traveling around. Matter of fact, the mercy seat, which was in there with the Ark of the Covenant, was said to be the footstool of God where he rested his feet as he sat on his throne, seated above the cherubim, right? And once a year, the high priest would go in there and he would offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, the throne of God, quote, because of the uncleanness of the people, because of their sins, Leviticus 16, 16. And he did this year after year, only once a year. But we know from the scriptures that it never removed sin. All it did was delay the inevitable, essentially God storing up his wrath in a bucket until he could finally dump it out. Well, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, it marks the arrival of the true high priest. See, as we've been discussing, we see that Jesus is the priest offering the sacrifice, but Jesus is also the unblemished lamb of God who is the sacrifice. That like the high priest of old, Jesus entered the holy place, but unlike the high priest, he entered to offer himself. That unlike the high priest, Jesus only had to enter one time because he sprinkled his own perfect blood on that mercy seat. And unlike the previous high priests, Jesus' sacrifice was more than sufficient for any quantity of sin. You know, for those of you who maybe are wrestling with Christianity, you may wonder, well, why does Jesus have to be my sacrifice? First of all, that's gross. And second of all, why can't I do it for myself? And the essence is that Jesus fulfilled two conditions which none of us can meet. The first reason why Jesus could be a priestly mediator is because Jesus alone fully obeyed the law of God so that he was without any sin, neither by nature nor by choice. And so Jesus alone can enter in. To the true holy of holies, not the shadow of the holy of holies, which is the tabernacle, but the author of Hebrews says the true holy of holies, which is in the heavenlies, Jesus can enter in because he alone is perfect. And the second thing is that Jesus alone paid the penalty for sin. That that bucket of wrath which God was storing up, he could dump it on Jesus, although Jesus didn't deserve it. And because Jesus didn't deserve it, that enabled Jesus to be a substitute. You see, if you died for your sins, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. It would be justice. Frankly, that's what you deserve. We might think that we're entitled to really yummy cookies and brownies at Christmas, but what we're actually entitled to is death. That's what we're entitled to. And if God doesn't give us death, he's giving us mercy and grace because that's really the only thing that we deserve. But if Jesus did truly die in your place, then that means God's wrath is satisfied because the bucket has been poured out on him instead of you. And if that is true, that means you can be forgiven because the Bible says that the cost of sin is death and Jesus paid the cost so you wouldn't have to. One reason Jesus is the only way to God is because we needed that perfect high priest. And on Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of this high priest in this God-man, Jesus. Also, Jesus came as our prophet. Now, when the prophets, you know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what prophets are. They think prophet means telling the future, and they get confused, the Bible, with Nostradamus, okay? And so the prophet doesn't just mean telling the future. In the Old Testament, prophets were God's spokesmen. God would reveal truth to them, his law, his words. Instead of speaking to the whole nation, God didn't speak to the whole nation. Who did God speak to? Moses. And then Moses would go and speak, okay? And so this is the essence of what a prophet is. Prophets would hear from God, and then they would herald or proclaim that to the people of God. That's why so often you can see the prophetic breakdown when you study the scriptures because the prophecies begin with, thus says the Lord thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. The Lord came to Moses, thus says the Lord. And so this is what a prophet did. A prophet heard and proclaimed. So as the priest represents the people before God, the prophet represents God before the people. Now in the Old Testament, prophets were basically hated by and large because people don't like to hear truth, especially when it's bad news And so frequently in the Old Testament, the prophets would proclaim judgments and warnings and wrath. And the people didn't want to hear that stuff. They want to hear about sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. But with all of the prophets of old, God doesn't really care about whether or not the message is received. What he does care about is whether the prophets are faithful to proclaim what God actually told them. The ultimate prophet that we see in the Old Testament is Moses. God speaks to him in a burning bush on Mount Sinai, in the tent of meeting. It even says that God spoke to Moses as a man would speak to his friend. Moses would carry those words from God to Aaron, the high priest. He'd carry them to the people. And basically, what Moses said became law, period. Why? Because it actually wasn't what Moses said. It was what God said. And the time that we see when God said something to Moses and Moses didn't do it, Moses misrepresented God, Moses is punished. He's not allowed to enter into the promised land. God said, speak to the rock and it will give water to the people. And Moses took that staff and he struck the rock and he misrepresented God to the people because God wasn't angry, but Moses misrepresented as a prophet, as the prophet. Showing people what God wasn't actually like in that instance. Moses did a lot more than that. God did through Moses. He carried out the ten plagues. He split the sea. He brought water from the rock. And before he died, Moses announced in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And the Jews look forward to the day when another prophet like Moses would arrive. A prophet who would usher in a new law, which the Old Testament refers to as the new covenant. A prophet who would perform God's mighty works once again. A prophet who would be faithful to hear and proclaim God's word. Well, the birth of Jesus, the advent, the incarnation marks the arrival of, of the long-awaited prophet like Moses. See, like the perfect high priest, Jesus also functions as the perfect prophet. Matter of fact, almost 70 times in the synoptic gospels, synoptic gospels refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because together they form a synopsis of Jesus' story. 70 times almost Jesus is referred to as the prophet in in those gospel stories. See, the prophets proclaimed the word of God, but the book of John says that Jesus was the word of God. Matter of fact, we sang it in one of our Christmas carols, the word of the Father. Jesus was the word of the Father. John 1, 1 to 5, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God All things were made through him and without him was made not anything made that without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then just a few verses later, it says that the word became flesh. And so Jesus wasn't just proclaiming the word of God like a prophet of old, that Jesus was the word of God, implying that Jesus is the unfiltered, accurate embodiment of the word of the Father spoken. Hebrews 1, 1-2 puts it this way, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. See, Jesus was the perfect prophet because Jesus was and is the word of God. He was a faithful prophet, unlike the prophets of old who were unfaithful, who would constantly try to use their prophetic skills to trick kings and to lie to people. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, I have not spoken On my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus only said what the Father wanted him to say, he only did what the Father wanted him to do, and in those things, Jesus becomes the ultimate prophet. Unlike the false prophets of the world, Jesus only represents the Father accurately. Unlike Moses, he never misrepresented the Father. So he's a true and better Moses, a true and better prophet. See, Jesus was also born to die, which is that priestly sacrifice But then in a prophetic way, God would use his sacrifice to bring people out of Egypt, not in Egypt like the country, but in Egyptian slavery to sin and death. And God would bring his people across the waters, not the Red Sea, but represented in the waters of baptism, which represent a new creation, a new regeneration and resurrection. And so all of this makes Jesus unique Because whereas the prophets before him proclaimed mostly what? Bad news. Jesus proclaims what? Good news. The prophets of old, basically what they did was just proclaim bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And Jesus says, I'm here to give you good news. That's what the word gospel means. Not only did Jesus proclaim it, indeed, Jesus is it. And so on Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of our prophet par excellence. So, you know, I I like a good book, a good movie. I don't mean like a French movie. I mean like an action movie. You know what I mean? In any good adventure movie... Right? In any good adventure book, there is a structure. Um, There's actually a book about it called Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Probably a lot of you guys were forced to read it. In high school, it's the idea of the archetype of a hero that in every story from, you know, uh, Star Wars to, you know, to the Odyssey, you see these flows, these structures of the way our stories go. You know, you have this unlikely hero and then you have this call to something and you have kind of like a a testing in the wilderness and you have to go through this boon of trial, this belly of the whale, and you go out the other side and then it's the victor and he defeats the, all this kind of stuff. Matter of fact, one person I read a couple months ago said how could you summarize the Bible in a sentence or two and people were giving all these really complicated, you know, trying to like, create a sentence that wasn't a run-on, but it is a run-on. You know what I mean? It's like 600 commas. And one guy just summarized it as the hero kills the dragon and gets the girl. (laughs) And I thought, man, that's the Bible. He kills the serpent of old and he gets the bride of Christ. He kills the dragon and gets the girl. And there's a reason that is embedded in every one of our stories that we love. Because in any good story, everyone waits around for the hero to finally show up and finally defeat the forces of evil. And that type of anticipation, which we see in the stories that we adore, is the same type of anticipation that we should picture as we think about the incarnation, as we think about the people of God anticipating and waiting for. The advent, the arrival of their hero, the Messiah. That's what Messiah means, Savior. It's a hero. Not in anticipation to open presence, but because the world was, as Emmanuel says, in sin and error, pining. In sin and error, just waiting, anticipating for the arrival of the hero. Waiting, even if you didn't realize it before, Waiting for the promised priest, waiting for the promised prophet, and waiting for the promised king. And so, real easy peasy, what do we get from these roles? If you've been zoning out, you can come back in, okay? First thing is this. Look, be comforted because Jesus is your priest. Now, why is that good news? You are, do not have to stand before the all consuming fire through for, before, who, before who, which everyone is naked and exposed, right? You do not have to stand before the all consuming fire with your own pathetic offerings and excuses of why you should be accepted. Jesus did it on your behalf. You don't need to hope. That you're good enough. Matter of fact, first John says that I write these things so that you may know you are saved. Not that you may hope, not that you may think you have a fighting chance because you're better than that idiot you work with. No. that you may know. That you don't need to go to sleep writhing your hands in anxiety because you don't know if God's gonna punish you or accept you. That Jesus is your great high priest and advocate. He was accepted. And so if you trust him to be your advocate, you will be accepted. But if you decide you wanna go around him and do it on your own, I got bad news. You will be rejected because he's the only one who could be accepted. So you should be comforted knowing that. And the second thing is this, you should be encouraged because Jesus is your prophet, and he's here to proclaim good news. You know what that means? A lot of you guys, um, you, you wonder what God is like. You know, you say, you know, I wonder what God's like. I wonder how God would deal with this situation. I wonder how God would react to, you know, someone who does this or who doesn't do that. Can I tell you the truth? You don't have to wonder because Jesus is our perfect prophet. You don't have to guess what God is like. You don't have to philosophize and go on blogs and just kind of like see, well, maybe someone's got like a new spiritual idea and maybe they're going to have like a new angle and it's going to be on Amazon's top 10 best. No, you don't have to do that. You don't need to look to fallen men and women for truth about God. You have the great prophet who accurately portrays God. You have a prophet who not only teaches the word of God, but who is the word of God made flesh. And you have a prophet who can show you what God is like because the scriptures call him the visible image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. As Billy Graham said, anytime I wonder what God is like, I just take a long look at Jesus. That God the Father isn't like this dysfunctional curmudgeon while Jesus is like the cool uncle. It doesn't work that way. He is unchanging. He's immutable. That when you look at Jesus, you see the perfect image of the Father. Do you realize what good news it is that you don't have to be anxious because you don't represent yourself? That you have the best lawyer in the universe representing your case? And do you realize how wonderful it is that you don't have to go to bed and wonder about how to go to heaven or wonder what God thinks about this or wonder what God thinks about that. But you can know because the word took on flesh. See, that's why Christmas is good news. Because the world was in sin and error error, pining, waiting for these things, these three mediatory roles, and in Christ they came. And so we have good news. And so let us thank the Lord for the arrival of our prophet and priest. And this Christmas Eve, we're going to reflect on Jesus also as our long-awaited king. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son born of a virgin, born under the law, to rescue those under the law, that we might be called children of God. I thank you that you sent Jesus as our priest, that we have the perfect representative who will represent all of our sinfulness before a holy God and be heard and accepted. I thank you that we have the perfect prophet, that we don't need to wonder what you're like that we don't need to guess and invent new religions, but instead we can just look to Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, give us the comfort and peace that comes from these realities. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to actually place their trust in this priest Jesus and in this prophet Jesus, I pray that you would Give them no rest in their soul until they do. Father God, I thank you that we do not need a mediator who is a man. We do not need to go to a a man who is a priest because Jesus is our priest. I thank you that we can go directly to you because of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would celebrate that and take advantage of it this Christmas season. In your name we pray, amen.